this morning. Um, I considered preaching from Psalm 119, but um, just really struck with a passage of Scripture and just uh, was reading a book by Francis Schaeffer. And um, if there was a man who could write a book that would still be applicable today, uh, I would highly recommend um, The Great Evangelical Disaster. I know this sounds like a really good book, <laughs> but it's like he's speaking to our day and age. Um, he saw these things happening in the 80s, which many of us uh, were born in the 80s. <laughs> Some of you all were uh, parents in the 80s, but um, at the end of that book, he had a chapter on speaking specifically to John chapter 13. So I'd like to um, read this morning John 13, if you'll stand with me. We'll read the word of the Lord to us. Starting in verse 31, and we'll end in verse 35. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Lord, I pray that we would see in your word the need for love for one another. And I pray, Father, that our love for one another would be a, a sign to the world that we are your children. And Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would not only hear your words, but apply it to each and every day of our lives. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So t today's message is titled, The Insignia of the Believer. The insignia of the believer. Um, and I will say a lot of what I have in my message is and has been helped by one little chapter in that book that I mentioned earlier. And I believe that this message is a message that could transform us as a church and as uh, individuals because... We look in the world that we live in, and love is not what we would use to describe what is going on, right? What, what is it that is ruling our world today? It is fear and hatred. And if true love, as Christ has defined it, and as God has defined it, is evidenced in our church and in our lives towards other believers, whether in this church or elsewhere, then we will actually be proclaiming the gospel with our lives. Because if you look there at the end of this passage that we read this morning, Jesus is talking, it's interesting, Jesus has just told the disciples that he's going to be betrayed. Not typically what you've... You know, before you give a commandment to love one another, you don't talk about betrayal. But Jesus does. He, he's at the, the Lord's Supper, and that's when he says this. He washes the disciples' feet, including Judas. And then he predicts that Judas is going to, to betray him. And the very next thing he says is, therefore, verse 31. Isn't that interesting? In light of the fact that someone's going to betray me, therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, so who? Judas. When Judas had left, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. God would be glorified 
in the Son. If God is glorified in Him, who's that? Jesus, the Son of God. God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him immediately. And then Jesus, He's preparing them, right? He's preparing them for what's about to happen. He says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. Not, it's, just, it's a short period here. I'm about to go away. And where I'm going, you cannot come. That's not very good news. <laughs> you know, Jesus has talked about bringing the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will be a better, would be better for them when the Holy Spirit comes and Him even walking with them, which is incredible to think about. But He says in verse 34, this is the main context of what we're going to be sharing about today. He says, a new commandment I give to you. So he's saying, this is new. This is not something that you have been told yet. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now, if you remember, Jesus, when the I can't remember if it was a Pharisee or Sadducee. I can't remember who it was, but a man came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? I think he was a lawyer. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus had spoken about our love for all men, Right? But this is the first time Jesus specifically deals with the love between brothers. So the new command, this is, this is a commandment, which means what? It means that we can violate this in the church. We can violate this command to love one another. It's not a commandment because it's a suggestion. Well, if you want to love Joel, you can. If you want to love Mr. and Ms. Wazork, it's okay. No, this is a command. We are not entitled to an option as Christians but to love one another. So no matter who the person is in the church, we are called to love them. And, and what does this love look like? How, how do, what's our example? And, and Jesus says, Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This doesn't sound like the kind of love we want to be practicing in the church. Right? This is sacrificial love. This isn't that wimpy love that is described or portrayed on television. This sexual feeling or, or whatever. That is not what God, Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about love that costs you everything. Even money. Jesus is not talking about a love as the world has defined it today. Jesus is talking about real love. Love that will... Put your life on the line for a brother or sister in Christ. Again, this does not diminish the love that we should show to the lost. This is the same kind of love. But this love to one another is to be compared and um, demonstrated in light of what Jesus has loved us. So that is a gracious love. Did we deserve to die? Yes. Did we deserve the wrath of God? Yes. Did we deserve to be in the grave? Yes. But what happened? Jesus loved us. God so loved the world that He gave. He demonstrated His love by giving the Son so that whomever would believe in Him would not perish but have Everlasting life. 
Is Christ our example in the way we treat one another? Not just in the church, but what about your relationships with your husband or wife or your children? Believers or not. Do we demonstrate the grace and love of God in our relationships with our family? Because if we don't do it in our family, we most definitely won't do it in the church. If you can't love your wife when she does something that annoys you, because that's never happened, I'm sure, or if you can't love your husband because he keeps leaving his clothes on the bathroom floor or whatever, I'm just using that as an example, whatever it is that bothers you, if you can't love them through it, it may require, as we'll talk about later, confrontation. But loving our spouses or our family members is only an extension of our love for the church and for one another. I was thinking, what are some of the hindrances to love? Typically it's offense. Like we offended someone and now they can't love us and we can't love them because they won't forgive us. The offense is often a, a, a hindrance. Another one is personality. I just don't mesh with that person. God didn't ask you to mesh with them. He said to love them. They may grate you the wrong way. They may be the last person you would have ever wanted to be a friend with. But God says to love them. Maybe they haven't just offended you, but they've actually spoken evil of you. These are all options. There's, there's many reasons why we as a church and, and our families, our love for our, our wives or husbands who are believers, right, isn't the way it should be because we let offense overrule the example that Christ gave. Can you imagine if Jesus said, you know what, I'm tired of this betrayal by Judas, I'm done. I'm tired that everyone that I came to preach the gospel to is wanting to stone me and kill me because I said I'm the Son of God. I'm tired as He's walking to, the, to be crucified, carrying His cross, being beaten. What if He had quit then? What if He said, I'm offended, I'm too, it's been too hard, I'm done. Yet as Christians, oftentimes we'll let something as small as a $20 calls us to stop loving someone in the church. Where's our priority? I know this is a very exciting message. The reason I believe that this message can change our church is because it's not that we don't love one another, but we don't spend time with one another. That is another hindrance to love. And I know it's difficult because of where we live, myself included. I don't live close to here. But when you love someone, you want to be around them. You want to be with them. You want to spend time with them. You want to have fellowship with them. I talked about this, I can't remember how long ago, but you know, imagine you saying you love your wife and yet you spend no time with her, or vice versa. You say, I don't love my job, I love you, and where do you spend all your time at work? Well, that doesn't, that doesn't calculate. When you love someone, you want to be with them. And so it's hard when somebody, oh, I love you so much, see you later. Right? We don't believe that, because that's not true. As Christians, love is more than just saying the right things. It is actually living as though it is true. And that has often been the problem in the church. We say we believe certain things, 
But in reality, our lives do not actually line up with it. We say we believe the Bible is true, yet our lives do not align with His Word. We say that we believe that marriage is one man, one woman for life, and yet we're embracing all types of immorality, adultery, remarriage, divorce, all those things. And one, one more thing, and this, this will not be popular outside of here, I don't think. We say we stand for the sanctity of human life, and yet we're running and even telling other believers they should go and get a vaccine that was tested on the remains of a, an aborted fetus. That, to me, is compromise. Why? Because we're saying one thing, but we live as though it's not true. We have no idea what ethics is about anymore in, in the Christian church. That, that Those other things are not the point of the message. My point is, as believers, if we say we love one another, we need to start acting like it. Not that we're doing it in our own strength. And why, why does this even matter anyways? Why does it matter that we love one another? Well, Jesus says in verse 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples. So you're telling me that the world should know we're his disciples by the way we love one another. That's, a, that's an indictment, right? How often do we hear in the church, well, I, I can't because they don't love. Well, there's a difference. Some people think love is just what we described at the beginning of this message. Just some flimsy feeling that comes and goes. They don't realize that love is a covenant that we make with one another. An unbreakable one. But Jesus says, by this, all men, not just Christians, all men, the world, will know that you are my disciples. If, this is a very big if, right? If you have love for one another. You want to know, in my estimation, why the world knew that the disciples were different when Jesus was gone? Because they love one another. You know what the insignia of the believer is? It is love for the brethren. And the unity that comes from that. Right? How many times in the book of Acts do you hear they were all in one accord? They were not a Honda, okay? That just came to mind. But uh, they were all together. They were in unity. Why? Because they loved one another. They weren't seeking to cause division and, and strife. They loved one another too much to be running around and speaking behind one another's backs. They understood that gossip was not loving or any other things that we could say about a brother or sister? Backbiting? But oftentimes we are quick to stop loving because it's not popular to be with that person or in that situation. We're unwilling to stand up for truth because this is the other side of love. We can't have love to the exclusion of holiness and purity in the church. It is a two-sided coin. We need to stand for truth 
and be willing to confront sin, but we need to do it in love. The reason that you discipline as a church is not to put the person out of the church necessarily. It is to transform the heart of that person so that they can be rejoined in the church. Does that make sense? Jesus, when he describes what church discipline is about in the, in the New Testament, we see that it's, it's meant to bring restoration, not condemnation. That's the devil's job. He is quick to condemn. Now, if that person chooses to continue in sin and they're unwilling to change, that's different. That doesn't mean we go around talking bad about that person. The world knows. How do we talk about those... Okay, this morning, how do we talk about those who are no longer here? Whether we believe or not that the reason that they're not here is good or bad. How do we talk about them? Do we truly speak in love? Because I, I do believe that some left in the wrong attitude, in the wrong way. And I'm not ashamed to say that. I, I believe that we should, shouldn't ignore that. Love does not ignore sin. Because that would ignore the holiness of God. But how do we speak about that person? Do we say, oh, can you believe that? That doesn't sound very loving. Maybe the difference should be, I'm concerned for their soul and their heart because I don't believe that the way they went was right. And we go to that person. This is the hard part about love. Love requires confrontation. Not yelling in your face confrontation. Not a debate. But loving confrontation. And this starts in a church, a healthy church. If Joel sees my kids doing something, he should confront my child and then say something to me in love. Not, I can't believe your kids are wild. And Well, he can believe because he has kids too. All kids need discipline. <laughs> but if Joel does not feel comfortable saying something to me as a brother, then it may be a problem between us. But it will affect our children. And it will affect the church. If I offend you, and you cannot, and do not feel like you can confront my offense, then we don't love one another. You know what the number one problem people say about marriage is? They don't communicate enough. <laughs> this is a relationship very similar to marriage, right? In the church. God has put us together. We're different. We have different desires. We have different wants. We have different needs. But when God puts us together, we are committed, covenanted, just like marriage. A covenant is not breakable. Right? We, we treat marriage like a contract. Well, you sign this and then, you know. Well, a contract can be broken. Covenant cannot. So, as believers, we covenant together. God has transformed my life. And because of that, I want to be a part of this body. This is where God is leading me to be. Not this saying that you can't leave a body if God is guiding you elsewhere, but you take that seriously. So, when Jesus says to love one another, it's not just a, well, this might be a good idea, right? It's a command, and this command has power because it demonstrates to the world that we are His disciples. Which means that if we are failing to do this command, that doesn't mean that we're not His disciples, but we're not demonstrating to the world. It's not observable. They, they can't look at the church and say, well, those people are Christians, because I can. There, it is obvious. Why? Because the mark of being a Christian is not that you hold a, a certain doctrine. 
though there are. I'm not ignoring that. But one of the first signs of a Christian gathering and community is love for one another. You want to find a healthy church? Find a church where they love one another. That's what's healthy. And that love is not just some flippant love again. It is love based on the truth of God's Word. It is love that will confront sin, will care for one another, will actually go to a brother alone instead of talking behind their back. Look with me at John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus is talking about the disciples being in the world. And how the world hates them because they hate him. And then in verse 20 he says, you know, he's, well, so this is high priestly prayer, but he's, he's talking specifically in this moment about us being in the world, his, his children. And then he says here in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of those alone, but for those also who believe in me through your word. So who does this apply to? Us, right? Because Peter's told so-and-so, who told so-and-so, who told so-and-so, and at some point they told you, and you became a believer. And what does he desire? He says that they all may be one. Love will always lead to unity. Right? You want to see a good marriage? To one that's unified about the right things. You may have differences. Meg and I have differences. But we love one another, so we're unified. Especially in front of our kids. We try not to argue over our differences about something. We talk about it Outside of their view. Why? Because they need to know that love makes not compromise to sin, but is willing to be unified even when it's not easy. Anyways, that you may, they may all be one. Who? Those who will believe. All who believe. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. Why? Why in the world is it important that the church loves one another and that, and that because of that love we're unified? So that the world may believe you sent me. This is a tragedy, unfortunately, in the church. How many people have... You heard say, well, the church did this, so I don't believe anymore. You want to know the number one reason that the world does not believe that Jesus was sent from the Father? Because of us. Not, again, I am not throwing the church under the bus because that bothers me to no end. We're not perfect. But the reason that Jesus is so concerned that we love one another and that we are unified, that we are one, is because this is how the world will know that Christ was sent by the Father. This is how the world will come to know this. And when love and disunity is the marker of the church... There's no way the world is going to look at that and say, well, that, you know, Jesus did come. If the world wants disunity and hatred, they can just go outside and get on Facebook and Twitter. They don't need to come to the church for that. So how do we as Christians demonstrate in observable ways this kind of love. I've already 
kind of hinted quite a lot to these. The first one is that in practice it means repentance when we do not love our brother. Now you remember when, G- when Paul is talking about the communion bread? A lot of people say, well, you know, he's talking about sin. We need to deal with sin right before we come to church. What? You don't deal with sin when God convicts you? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about disunity among us. The reason that people are falling asleep is because they're taking communion and they're not in accord with one another. So number one, I believe that to be observable, repentance is required for us. If I believe I have offended someone, I need to repent. Maybe they have... Maybe I've heard from someone else that they're offended. It requires repentance. First, this is is what love is. It is first us realizing our problem. Right? Because if we go into a situation thinking we did everything right, There's not going to be any love or unity in that discussion or that confrontation. We must seek God and say, Lord, I know there's something between us. I don't know what it is, but Lord, show me what I need to repent of and be honest with that person. Secondly, it means forgiveness when we are not loved by our brother. Whether they forgive they ask for repentance or not. Right? This is a part of that self-sacrificial love. So it requires repentance on our part and it requires forgiveness when we are offended, when we don't feel like our brothers or sisters loved us. Thirdly, it means loving discipline. This is popular I know. But it's, it's not revengeful discipline. He did that, he deserves to be. Or she did that, she deserves to be. No, it is a, a conscious effort as the church to love that person enough to discipline them and to continue to care and pray for them even when they're under discipline. It, it's discipline that follows the, the biblical plan for discipline. Not jumping straight to telling everybody in the church about the problem. No, it's going to them individually, then bringing another brother, and then bringing the, the, the leaders of the church. Not gossip, not backbiting or, or talking about a brother behind his back. That will never bring love in that relationship, and it will never bring unity. Could you imagine if your husband or wife was talking about you behind your back? I can't believe that woman and what she did to me. And Can you believe that she left that out? She knew I loved that and, and she left it outside and now it's all ruined. Or, that I don't think that's happened, so I'm not... Please, I'm just... I'm trying to use an illustration that won't cause problems at home. <laughs> but... If I, if I go out and, and am talking about Megan like that, will that bring unity in our marriage? No. What if she went out and started talking about my problems to the world? Started telling everybody what I had done wrong to her and hurt her. Would, would, that, would that bring unity? Would I feel her love or would I feel like, well, she doesn't really love me? Right, because... When you love someone, you talk to them personally. You, you actually desire to have a relationship with them. And this very much so is 
similar to our relationship with the Lord. Right? What, what is it that keeps us from relationship with the Lord? Sin. Offense. And if we don't go to the Lord and repent and ask forgiveness, then we can't enjoy fellowship with Him. That's why He disciplines us. He, he wants to have relationship with us. That's why He sent His Son. He wants us to enjoy communication with Him. If you look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is a, a very good illustration of the twofold practice of discipline in my, in my mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is addressing a sin in the church, and he says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Now, this is pretty gross sin, right? You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that one who has done this deed would not be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in my body and present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Jesus. Now, is Paul... Just washing over this sin. He just said, you know what? Just love him. Would that be... No, he's, he's actually saying something loving. He's saying, this guy who's doing this is in sin. And you all have been afraid to deal with it. So I'm telling you, you've got to deal with it. But it, what is the purpose of Paul? He says... Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, if you ended there, now that would sound like, that would be very loving, right? But Paul doesn't end there. He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't want this man to be cut off from the church and cut off from the kingdom of God. No, he, he's saying, if you don't deal with this sin, then he will not make it. He will be Sent to hell. Right? This is why discipline matters in the church. And then he goes on talking about leaven. You don't discipline this, guess what? Somebody else is going to fall into sin. Could be worse. But this sin is so gross, and yet Paul is not saying you need to kick him out so he can never come back. No, you need to kick him out. Discipline him so that he can be saved. So he can be transformed. Well, the problem is something happened in Corinth because apparently they didn't do it in the right way. If you look at, with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 6. He says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. What is he? He's talking about this guy, this person. So on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient to all things. So, Paul is saying, you need to tell this man that you love him. You need to, 
He's been punished. So there must have been repentance on the part of this man. There must have been transformation. Right? The discipline worked. It worked the way it was supposed to do. Why? Because it was supposed to be in love. But the problem is they're having a hard time renewing this man to the church. Reaffirming their love for this brother. And Paul is saying, you can't do that. Schaefer says this, he says, you can imagine Paul saying this, he says to the Corinthians, if you took this verse, don't you realize that the surrounding pagans of Corinth have a right to say that Jesus was sent by the Father because you are not showing love to this man you properly disciplined? Let me read that again. Don't you realize that the surrounding pagans of Corinth have a right to say that Jesus was not sent by the Father because you are not showing love to this man you properly disciplined. Does that make sense? If we are not willing to love those who've been disciplined, then we're telling the world that they can say that Jesus was not sent by the Father. We're, our badge is saying that. Right? So you imagine the military... You have all these badges, you know, uh, special forces or um, different training skills, aerial, um, what do they call that? Paratroopers? Yeah, that's, that's, that was the word I was thinking. Um, but they have insignias to defi- show you they, these people have these qualities, and so they're able to do this. Well, as Christians... Instead of being on the offensive, oftentimes we're on the defensive and we have no insignia. People don't even know if we're with Christ or not because we don't love one another. We're not, we're not actually concerned about the souls of our brothers and sisters. We, we want either free love or no love. Right? We don't realize that it's got to be a mix We want purity in the church. God's word is clear about purity. But if we cannot love our brothers and sisters in Christ enough to not only tell them the truth, but to bring them back into the church when sin is dealt with, that's not very loving. I remember in seminary I had a a professor for a preaching class. And I've never ever heard of this before. And I thought it... I was honestly shocked that a Baptist church would do this. No offense to Baptist churches that are good. But they had a young lady in the church who had become pregnant outside of marriage. And she was a professing Christian. And somebody went to them, went to her, said, you need to repent. That You can't, this is not right. This is not only a a private sin, this is a public sin. So then the pastor of the church went to her and, and counseled her and, and talked to her and they said, you're going to need to publicly repent before the church because this is a public event. It's not like you can hide this. And this young lady came before the church and did so. And guess what happened? After the service, there were lines of people lining up, waiting to ask her how they could help her. Is that how we... When I heard that story, it was like, this is love, right? Yes, she sinned. But this young lady experienced God's love for her. They even had people saying, we'll help watch your kids so you can provide for her. We're gonna, we're gonna, we as a church are going to support you because you are one of us. She repented and she was brought back into fellowship and she was shown the love of Christ. And when I heard that, again, my heart was moved because that is what it should be for us in the church. In a similar situation, it should be the same. We want to see you and your child succeed. We don't want to see you running down to the abortion clinic in Louisville because you don't feel like there's any chance or hope for your child or for your life. You say you stand for the unborn? Stand up for these women who 
have listened to the lies of the devil but are repentant and have moved and are willing to stand on what is true? Are we willing to reaffirm our brothers and sisters when they fall into sin? Or are we going to be... That doesn't mean that we need to reaffirm them in love in the sense of saying, oh, it's going to be okay if there's no repentance. There needs to be repentance, obviously. That's paramount to being brought back into the church. But if we were to see that person, whoever it may be on the street, before they're brought back, how would we talk to them? Hey, I hope you're doing well. I really desire to see you brought back into fellowship with us. We love you and we only want to see you succeed. Is that how we would talk to him? Or we'd be like, oh no, I saw him in the supermarket. I better go hide behind that, the row of, uh, you know? Is that how we approach somebody who's been in that situation? I, I pray not. So, this brings another question. So we've dealt with some of the observable ways that we can show love, but what if there is opposition, truly convictional opposition that we, we must come to? We, me and a brother can't agree on something. Why? Because we believe that God is holy and we believe that the confrontation must happen. So how do we do this? First, we don't do it without regret and tears. Crying out to God, Lord, I, I see what's going on in their life and something has to change. This is not right. Not a belligerence. You're wrong, you da 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 da. No, we are approaching that person with tears. Why? Because we care for their souls. We, we're not wanting them to fall into sin. We don't want them to go to hell. Right? That's such a popular statement. On movies. That's the world statement, not the church. We want people to make it. And so we approach this with tears and, and crying out, Lord, please change their heart. And when we come into that situation, we have the right heart. We have the heart of God. We're asking Him by His Holy Spirit to give us His heart for this person. This is why I don't like some approaches to sharing truth on Facebook and Twitter. Because it's belligerent. It's not actually seeking to see reconciliation with people who are in sin or espousing doctrine that is not true. It's actually seeking to just throw the truth out there like, that is love. It is not love. It is not. I, I won't... Sorry, I'm getting a little mad. <laughs> not, not at you. But that kind of attitude is the kind of attitude that proclaims to the world, Jesus didn't come. So not without regret and tears. And secondly, we need to do it keeping in mind the gravity of the issue at hand. We must continue to show love in our words and actions so that the world has an example. Yes, it may be a heretical issue. I'm not denying that there are such things. But the way that we handle it as believers will proclaim either the lordship of Jesus Christ to the world in our lives, that He came and transformed us, or it will tell the world He didn't really come, He didn't really transform that guy's life. Schaefer said this, he says, In my difference with my brother 
Is my difference with my brother in Christ really crucially important? If so, it is doubly important that I spend time upon my knees asking the Holy Spirit, asking Christ to do His work through me and my group that I may, that I and we might show love even in this larger difference that, than when that we have come to with a brother in Christ or with another group of true Christians. Is that really, is that difference so important that we need to be on our knees as a church, as individuals? Are we spending time on our knees crying out to God, Lord, use us to transform this situation, to transform this false doctrine? Are we going to be like some... And I'll actually name someone. John, uh, what, oh man, I can't even name, think of his name now. John MacArthur. It's not that John MacArthur doesn't stand for truth, and sometimes the things he says are really good. But sometimes the th- way that he does it is very much so belligerent. If you go back and look at the way he responded to Beth Moore, for example, if you know anything about that situation where she was preaching in churches and he told her to go home. But the way he did it was not, it wasn't a sense of, well, this should be reconciled. The way that he did it was not loving. I'm not, again, please do not take me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't stand for truth. I do believe that. But he could have done that in a a much better way. But he doesn't... Honestly, I don't think he cares about how it's perceived. And I don't know that he understands this section of Scripture that we're talking about today. That it actually proclaims of the world. Right? Because guess what happened on Twitter? I was following at the time. All these people, not just in the church, but in the world, were all jumping on her bandwagon saying, oh, isn't he such a fundamentalist? Um, essentially saying, you know, you're right, he's wrong. But she was in the wrong. What he said was technically right, but his spirit about it was not loving. And so what happened? The world began to... All line up behind her. Oh, you're you're amazing. Everything's great, and you're. I'm sorry, but that should not be the result. Yes, the world will line up behind those who are walking in sin. But as Christians, we have to decide: Are we going to stand for truth at the expense of love or in love? There's no option. You can't. Love and not have holiness. You can't have love and no holiness. You can't have holiness without love. You need them both as believers. And some people, like myself, have an easier time. Like, we need to be following the rules. And we're careful because that becomes legalistic, right? But then there's other people who are loving. They, they naturally tend by God's grace. That's why they're in the church. They naturally want to love others, but they need help on the other side to be to realize the, the importance of holiness. The question is, as believers, will we stand for love or for holiness in love, or will we use holiness as an excuse to condemn even our brothers and sisters in Christ? And in in the end proclaim that Christ did not come. Because the world will put two and two together if we are not unified. Thirdly, when we have opposition, it will require sacrifice. It will cost you something. And that may mean maybe a brother or sister has taken advantage of you financially because you're showing love. Do you decide to go to court against them? Right? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You take them to court 
Or do you just say, you know what? God, this money, it's just money. It's not worth bringing disunity and, and kicking the Spirit out of our church. Maybe it's a better idea to go into loaning someone something and saying, you know what? If I never get it back, it was a gift. Not that we as receivers of those loans or gifts should return things in bad shape because Scripture is very clear about that. You know, if you, if you hurt an oxen that you've bought, borrowed, then you're re- responsible to return it whole. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't like... God brought that to my attention one day and like two days later I burned up somebody else's electric-powered circular saw. <laughs> it's like, ah, uh, I guess that does apply to today. <laughs> <laughs> but as Christians, we have to be willing to sacrifice our own desires at times and, and to really come to a decision. Is this really an issue that needs to be dealt with? Maybe there, you have a discussion with the person and you just realize, you know what? This is going to cause more problems in the church than it's going to solve. It's not worth these, this dispute. It's not worth this $100 or whatever, you know, 50 bucks or $20. When we go into opposition, we don't go in to win. We go in looking for a solution. I, mean, I know this sounds like couples counseling, but that's not, <laughs> that's not the point. But relationships are relationships. Most often, we go into an argument thinking we're right and they're wrong and we have to prove it to them. Right? In a marriage, in any relationship. But God is saying, no, that's not loving. Loving is, I want to see a solution. Now, as men, we think we have the solution already, right? We're going in, we're problem solvers. And the wife just says, I want you to listen to me. If you've ever seen It's Not About the Nail, I think I've mentioned that one before. But watch it on YouTube. But we need to be willing to go in and say, I don't have to win. We just need to resolve this so that we can return to a right relationship with one another. Maybe we need to ask that person, what is it that you really want? Maybe they don't know. Or vice versa. What is it that's really bothering you? What, what, is it, what is it deep down that is the problem? But we're not going in to win a battle. We're going in for a solution. Not to compromise, not to accommodate sin. But is that how we approach it? And finally, we have to realize that, well, consciously, we have to consciously Realize that it's just as easy to compromise as it is to forget our need as believers to exhibit oneness in Christ. They're both easy, right? All of us have a natural tendency to one or the other, right? Some just hate conflict, so they're just ready to compromise. And others don't care. Not that they don't care for the person, but they, their disposition, the way God made them, They don't care what other people think. They're going to stand for truth. But as Christians, both of those can fall into sin, right? Because if we are not loving in the way that we confront sin, what did Jesus say? That's how they'll know you're my disciples and how the world will know that Christ came, your unity. I don't know if you feel like I I do about this message. But I do believe we all need to have the insignia of the love of Christ for one another on our battle garments, our fatigues. Because when the world sees us Jesus says, they will know you 
are my disciples by your love for one another. I know the practical was a lot of different things. But I do hope that as believers, we can truly have fellowship with one another. Not just a um, surface level relationship. The more you know someone, the easier it is to get offended by them. Well, they know me. They, right? But it's also an opportunity to be more like Jesus. An opportunity to grow in our walk with the Lord. To learn patience, long-suffering, grace and mercy. This message really hit home with me because that's what I want here in our body. I don't want to just have a Sunday morning, maybe Wednesday night relationship with you all. I want a relationship of trust and love that is built over meals and times together. That's what a church does. And I, I know I'm not trying to be judgmental, okay? I, I live 35 well, 37 minutes from here. So I'm, I, some of y'all live close. So, um, and if it were my choice, I would live close as well. But um, all that to say... I don't want to think I have a relationship with you all. I want to know I have one. Because I found out, what was it? Whenever everything went down. Honestly, about, about four years ago, I lost, at that point I'd already lost over half of my friends. And growing up, I think Joel's the only one here growing up that and Wesley, that I still have a, a relationship with. Because everyone else left. Not I'm not going to blame, I'm not throwing blame anywhere. I'm just saying, I want us as believers to be in fellowship with one another. I remember as a young kid, when there was a gathering or something, everybody went. And it wasn't just like random People just hung out because they wanted to. That, that was their community. And our, our world has become so technologically and otherwise advanced that we... This is not just a problem our church is facing, by the way. But the, the church no longer really spends time together during the week. It's kind of more, well, if, if we have time, we'll make it happen. Which, by the way... <laughs> Never, never happens. Because time doesn't stop and say, hey, you got time. No, we, we make decisions accordingly. Anyways, this message has really um, impacted me because I want to love you all like Christ loved me. And vice. I want to know that in the reverse as well. I want my kids to see what love in the church really looks like. What unity in the church really looks like. Um, so, that's what I have this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the love that you shed in your Son on the cross for us. The love you showed us in sending Him. You demonstrated it in real Life, and Lord, I pray that our whole lives would demonstrate your love to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to the world. Lord, that we would not have this worldly view of love, but a love that is founded on your word, a love that is founded on the holiness and the justice of God. A love that desires to see one another thrive in their relationship with God and hates it when the devil is bringing sin in to destroy their relationship with you. God, I pray that we would draw closer to one another as you have brought us together and that we would be knit 
together as believers so that we could be encouraged and strengthened by the power of your Holy Spirit and, and unified. Lord, that in our unity, the world would know and believe that you sent your Son. Father, I thank you for your grace in my life and my family and this church that you have not given up on us. You've continued to draw us to yourself and continue to convict and and guide our thoughts and minds and pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us again afresh, fill us afresh with your Spirit, draw us afresh to one another. Give us the courage, Lord, to make sacrifices so that we can not only know one another better, but love one another as you have loved us. Pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.